In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. All right, welcome back again. We've got another awesome story for you today. Um, Hopefully you've been tracking back and listening to some others. And then today we have Erica. Uh, We've met through networking groups and I love networking groups because it gives us an opportunity to expand our Obviously, network. I feel like I'm saying that too many times, but it gives us a chance to meet new people, uh, reach out. And to be honest, I've only ever talked with you, Erica, on the uh, aspect of like a business relationship. So I'm really excited about hearing kind of the background of how you became as, can I say, powerful as you are? I mean, <laughs> I think it's an awesome, but thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. And I'm going to let you jump into it. How did you get started? What were your beliefs that you had before you stepped into what we now call our adult life? Okay, so we'll start. I grew up in uh, Staten Island, New York, and I was very blue collar, working class family. My dad was a sanitation man for New York City. My mom was a hospital clerk. And the belief was you're going to get a job that made sense. You're going to stay in that job until you get your pension. And there you go. And, you know, potentially stay on Staten Island, get married, have kids, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I remember growing up, like we weren't necessarily poor. We were fine. I mean, sanitation, especially with overtime, got paid pretty well in New York City. But one of the things my mom had always said was, all right, we're going to win. She'd always play the lotto. And every time we didn't win the lotto, it was like, well, I guess we're not meant to be wealthy. And oh. I remember thinking to myself, well, why? Why Why is that? That that was always strange to me. And I have, uh, I was a very odd kid in that I spent a lot of time by myself, like playing video games and reading books because my parents had moved from a neighborhood that had kids on the block to a neighborhood that did not. And I was a very academic person. And I decided after my sister took me with her, my si- my oldest sister is 11 years older than me. She took me on a day trip to NYU with her. We went to the city for the day to have pizza and she brought me around NYU's campus. And I and it was her dream to go there. And I was like, I want to go here. So I decided in fourth grade that I was going to go to NYU. And then I planned out all the things I was going to need to do in order to get to NYU. So I picked the high school I wanted to get into and extracurriculars, everything that would make that a thing. At the same time, people are like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, maybe a gynecologist. Do not ask me why I want to be a gynecologist at 10. I was like, maybe I want to be a stockbroker. Maybe I want to be a lawyer. Because these are things that were like power things, power status things in New York City. You know, Wall Street was out and, you know, a whole bunch of So I was like, I'm going to be one of these two things. And it makes sense because academically, I'm smart. I should be one of these two things. And then I got into NYU. I also got into other schools. And in my senior year, right before graduation, I was getting my watch fixed because I needed to change the battery in it. And the the guy who's fixing my watch is like, so um, are you in school? I was like, yeah, I go to Notre Dame Academy. He's like, oh, what year are you? I said, a senior. Oh, so you're going to college soon. I said, yeah. He goes, where are you going? I said, I don't know. Because I was freaking out about Am I going to go to NYU where my parents, again, not the wealthiest people were like, well, if you want to go to NYU, you can pay for it. We're not. Hmm. I was like, what do you mean? You don't have a college fund? They're like, no. I was like, oh. So like, I had to figure that aspect out. But the other colleges I got into, I had full scholarships too. So I was really trying to figure out, do I go with the school that's my dream 
Do I hedge and do a transfer after two years or whatever? So I'm talking to this jeweler about this and he's not saying much other than working on my watch. He's absolutely intently listening to me. And then he says, when he finishes my watch, you know, Colonel Sanders invented the recipe for KFC when he's 69. There's no such thing as a last train leaving town. And at that point, I was like, holy shit, I can do whatever I want and it's okay. I can change my mind and it's okay. And the weight of the world was just gone all of a sudden. And I realized I didn't have to do what made sense. I could do whatever I want to do because it spoke to me. So I went to NYU. <laughs> I thought you were to say you went somewhere else. Oh my goodness. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so let me ask you a couple of questions because you, you hit a couple of things. One of the things that I, I remember actually you said that and it kind of triggered my own thoughts of we're not meant to be, uh, and you can fill in whatever blank, but like, how did that impact you when you heard that? And it probably was I, the way you were said it. It sounds like it was more than just one time. It was probably a consistent. How did that impact you as you, I mean, you made the decision in fourth grade and like, like what kind of, what was going through your head? What was the impact of that? It didn't seem like, I don't understand why that was a fact because I could, I could understand there are a way to work. It's more than one way to a path. And that's what she was thinking. It had to be the lotto. And I was like, but they were stuck. My parents were stuck because of, you know, their upbringing. you you pick your career, you stay in it and, and you don't leave. You get your retirement, you get your watch. And you get your thank you and your handshake and that's it. And the only other way out of that is by luck, if not saying, and my parents weren't big on investing. So it wasn't until, you know, flash forward after my grandmother died, my mom got the house. I was like, so when you sell the house, you're going to invest that money because here I am at 27 at the time, much more knowledge about this stuff. So I'm advising my parents on what to do with this stuff. They've never done it. And they still had a hard time understanding. They were putting money in something that wasn't just a savings account with a steady return based on an interest rate. This was like a risk that they were getting involved in. And this happened in 2006. So in 2008, when everybody else lost a lot of their money, they were like, well, we were promised. And like, everybody else lost the same thing. And by the, the, the fact that they got all that back within two or three years, like they haven't done anything to help us. They didn't double this. I'm like, they got all your money back. That's huge. And then more. So, you know, there, there's that. It's just their way of thinking there's only one way to do it. I'm so happy I did not ascribe to that because one of the things too, my dad was like, when I was a lawyer, because, you know, let's flash forward even more. I did turn into a lawyer. I'm a recovering lawyer now. But one of the things he was saying is like, Eric, you got to put your money away and pay off your student loans. And I was traveling the world. I was paying my student loan, but I was also traveling the world. And he's like, well, you could pay it off faster. And I also worked a, a weekends at an ICU. And one of the times I came back after like a two month backpacking trip, there was a 31 year old woman who had a brain aneurysm and was only kept alive for her family to say goodbye to. And she was going to be, she was basically dead and they were just going to mm-hmm. take her off life support. And I said, right after, like literally two days after I got back from my trip, I said, dad, that is why I don't spend all my money paying down my debt because I can die at 31. And what is my epitaph going to say? You know, Eric Andreessen died debt free and what a great credit score. Eric Andreessen had a good credit score and also lived a, full, a pretty full life. I'd rather that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we might have to have a side conversation because of all the backpacking and everything else. That's uh, like a passion of mine, but we'll put that on the shelf because uh, some of the other episodes that came up as well. It's so interesting though, as we kind of talk about that. And I think a lot of people, and I'm going to put us all in the same generation, we were raised with parents that had that same mindset of, 
the you do one thing after another after another. And it was like this, I don't know, a ladder that you would build upon. You stay in that. And I think it's really impacted a lot of our generation in ways that we don't quite understand and it's affected us. And then what you just said about the switching part of it, when did it become obvious to you that you were really almost in a sense parenting your parents on some of those different components? Was that something that was a shock to you? And I know we're kind of really fast forwarding into the the end of things, but a lot of us are kind of getting into those positions. That's why I'm asking the question. I think I started parenting my parents when I was in college because I knew what I wanted to do. I, the high school I went to, my whole senior year were college courses. I knew that was going to be a thing. I went to a college prep school. And then when I, when I got to NYU, I was like, well, how am I going to pay for this? Aside from the first year I had my student loan, I found out because I am somebody who happens to be in the right place at the right time. You can get a full-time job at NYU or any university and tuition remission is one of the perks. So you work full-time and you get free tuition. And I already was coming in with advanced standing. So I busted my butt to finish in four years still working full time so I could get my NYU education. And when that, that was the thing where I was like, there are different pathways to things. And I started talking to my parents about like money and, and they're just like, you're the smart one. You're the smart one. And I'm not saying that my, my other sister wasn't smart, but you know, my dad, um, before he died had, had said in a moment of some kind of, he was in a, in a, not exactly lucid state, but he was like, you know, your brain has always been. And I was like, uh, what does that mean? He's like, you have a way of thinking about things and seeing things that no one on this earth can really understand. I was like, interesting that he sees me this way. Wow. But okay. And when I knew I wanted to go, so at the time I, I was still, again, what makes sense? I don't make sense. Even to me, I don't make sense. So when I was finishing up NYU, I was. Like, do I want to be a lawyer? I don't really think I want to be a lawyer. I even did the debate team. I was a president of the debate team at NYU. And then it seemed like the next logical path was to go to law school. But then I took up a hobby of skydiving and I thought I might want to be a professional skydiver instead. So I put, you know, going to law school on hold for a year and then decided, yeah, that was a dumb lark. <laughs> Let me go to law school. <laughs> it was a fun, fun time, I'm sure. Yeah, it was. But the thing about the, the law school I didn't want to be like a normal lawyer, a quote unquote normal lawyer. A friend of mine's like, hey, do you know uh, everything about entertainment law? I said, what's that? She's like, that's how movies get made. I was like, wait, what? This is a thing? And she knew I was a film buff. So I was like, "I, I, what? I have to learn more about this. So I decided to go to law school to do entertainment law, specifically film financing, because it's super niche. And it's actually interpreting the tax codes to get funding for films and all that oh. stuff. So like, this, this is awesome, right? Yeah. And then I, I, when I was leaving law school, I was looking for entertainment boutique law firm because I was getting admitted in New York and California. I had the banks and I had the studios state covered and they wanted to offer me a job, but because it's a glamour industry, they didn't want to pay me anything. It's like a privilege to work for them. And I'm like, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm living back home in my parents' house in Staten Island. I don't want to do that. I got student loan debt. So, you know, I decided to go the corporate law instead and I didn't like it at all ever at any point but the money was good and you know the work was meh and but, but the thing is the money allowed me to pay for things for my parents so like it was my way of giving back i was taking them out to nice dinners i bought them a cruise you know it that made me feel fulfilled so i saw every hour i build as an hour that enhanced my life it also gave me the ability to pay for and fund my trips that i was taking yeah. So I really had a, a want for nothing, but I'd always said that I could leave corporate law because the money didn't really mean anything to me. And people are like, that's bullshit. Money always means something. I said, it really doesn't though. And then yeah. it wasn't. So I started corporate law in 2006. 
uh, early to, uh, late 2005, 2006. And then the world economy collapsed in 2008. The banks I was helping defend were the ones who caused the world economy to collapse. At the same time, I had started hanging out with somebody who was an army veteran and he was very involved in, in veteran affair type stuff. So he would invite me to all these events held by the USO and other organizations in the city, New York City. And uh, one of my coworkers had taken note of what I was doing. Like, oh, what'd you do tonight? I'm like, oh, I did this, this, and that. And she's like, oh, I saw this advertisement for a, it's the, the Mercy Law Clinic out of Detroit Law School, where they will train you to be a VA accredited attorney in exchange, you have to do some pro bono hours. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. So that's what I did. And I was like, you know what? This actually was the first time in my life I felt my law degree was used for something good. And I wanted to do more like it, but didn't want to charge money for it because it felt dirty to charge veterans. So mm -hmm. I decided that another thing that didn't make sense to a lot of people, I decided to join the army instead as active duty. And I took a $70,000 pay cut to do that because I always said the money didn't matter to me. And it didn't. I wanted to do what like fulfills me. And then I had a great legal career in the JAG Corps where I did a whole bunch of things that I love more than I ever did as a civilian lawyer. And then I decided after almost 10 years and I was approaching for, because I joined late. I was 31 when I joined. So after 10 years, I was moving around a lot. I was single. It's not easy for a female to snarl a man and be like, hey, leave your job and follow me around the country. I mean, women usually do that for men, not the other way around. And most of these men were like, I got like seven years before my retirement vest. I'm not leaving. And it's like, okay, fine. So, no, I just wanted more control over my life. And I had to put my paperwork in six months before I wanted to get out at a minimum. So January 2020, I put my paperwork in. Let that sit for a second. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I know what was going on January 20. <laughs> I yeah, know nothing was yet. Nothing yet. Yeah. Three months later. Absolutely. Terrible. I did not know that. And I, I had a conversation with a person I was supposed to work with. Um, I was leaving the military for a job, an in-house counsel job. And then I'm on leave in New Zealand in the beginning of March, 2020. I'm like, what the hell's going on back home? Why are people going nuts over toilet paper? I don't understand this. <laughs> and then I come home to a completely different place. I, I landed, yeah. in, I was stationed outside of Boston at the time. So I land in Boston Logan Airport at 5 p.m. on a Monday and it's dead. There's nobody other than the people on the plane with me coming through Logan Airport. I'm like, what the hell? And then, you know, lockdown, it just started the day before. So it was like a very strange place to be. Two weeks later, I'm like, this isn't easing up anytime soon. I go, wait a minute. Do I still have that job? So I reached out and that person pretty much new phone who dissed me. I'm like, wait a minute. Now I'm like screwed. I'm like, oh my God, I'm leaving. I don't have a job. So I got onto LinkedIn, which is the first social media I ever had was to get on the LinkedIn. And I was like doing all the things to try to find work. The worst time in the world to try to find a job is that time. Yeah. And I kept looking for like legal jobs because I'm like, oh, I got to get legal. It makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. So let, let me pause you because I think there's a tie in here. And I, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong here. But, you know, if we scroll back here and you said the 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 very first thing that kind of just triggered your mind to think was when you were with the, the watchmaker and you said, look, 69 Colonel Sanders, this is the whole yeah. thing. And you were just like, boom, oh, my world, <laughs> my world just wide open, right? So what was that transition? Because it sounds like that has the impact on joining the military, going in into JAG, making the decision to get out. And then now you're actually talking about how do I knew, I mean, you had your plan and all of a sudden that blew up and now you're actually, yeah. so what was the the mindset that shifted there in that time frame? Was it that, was the watchmaker the trigger that kind of got the ball rolling or was it, was there something else there? 
Yeah, so the, the, the watchmaker absolutely was the person who got the ball rolling because, you know, even when I was studying for the bar exam, because I worked at a hospital on weekends and I was wearing scrubs and my sister had commented, too bad you didn't go to medical school, you look good in scrubs. I go, I still can. She's like, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? What do I mean? She's like, you went to law school, you're going to be a lawyer. I go, I can also be a doctor. It doesn't matter. Like, it's it's never too late. And that is part of like, the, the, you know, I, I would joke, I didn't know what I want to be when I grew up. That's why I kept changing everything. But it wasn't that I didn't know I want to be where I grew up. I would, you know, and what, because of all my traveling, people will say, what is the favorite country you've ever been to? And I'm like, I can't answer that question because I was a different person mm. every country I was in. So it, it has a different memory for me. It, it might mean something different to me now. I mean, it took me four trips to London. I hated London the first three times. The fourth time I loved it because it's time of year, what I experienced and who I was at the time. So you know, it's not that I was confused about what I wanted to be, but what I wanted to be and what I was passionate about kept changing and evolving. And it should. It absolutely should. This is how, you know, your life should. When you let life happen to you and for you, you evolve as a person. Yeah. And you're, you're, everything about you changes in a much better way to make you more aligned with who you're meant to be. So every step of the way, I was pivoting to where I needed to be. However, where I just said, about, you know, I was trying to get a job because, you know, it makes sense. I was applying these legal jobs. This is where I lost myself for a second because I was nervous. Is this in the 2020 time coming back? Is that where you're at? Okay, perfect. Yep. I was nervous about what was going to happen. So I'm like, all right, I'm leaving a secure job for something in a pandemic. I can't even get an interview. Like, what am I going to do? And I was like, you can always put your paperwork back. And of course, the JAG Corps was like, come back, come back, pull it back. You're a major now. Like, come on, come on. And I was like, I don't want to do that though. That's not what I want to do. So I decided, I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to keep it the way it is. I won't be unemployed. There's no way I'm going to be unemployed when I, when I get off active duty. I was wrong. I was. And, and I was okay with taking that risk because I believed it wouldn't last for long. I was wrong to a point. So, you know, this is where like I needed another shakeup in my life because I, I forgot who I was. I was stressed mm -hmm. out about this job thing, the pandemic. So I left active duty the day before my 41st birthday and I had to move back home to New York. But my best friend said to me, he's like, Erica, do not move back home to your parents' house. That's so sad. Be a borough away, live in Brooklyn with, in my place and don't worry about the rent. I was like, okay. So I, I moved back home and I was able to see my parents a lot. My dad had been going to dialysis three times a week for his kidney issues. And then six weeks later, he died unexpectedly because he missed an appointment after a long weekend because he wasn't feeling well. So my, my mom had found him on the floor. And I know, number one, if I had that job for in-house counsel, I wouldn't have been living in New York. So I wouldn't have seen my dad. If mm -hmm. I had a job too, I wouldn't have been able to take care of the estate for my mom. I wasn't the executor my mom was, but there was no way she was going to be the executor. She, was, she married my dad when she was 19. They were married for 53 years before he died. So like, there's no way that was happening. I also happened to be starting PTSD therapy that day. And I'm like, guys, I can't do this today. And they go, all right, how about we just talk about your dad instead? I'm like, all right, I can do that. And it was when I realized that like, I needed to be where I was when I was without the job because I had too many plates I was going to be spinning. So I needed to do the things that were really vitally important to me. And having a job at that point wasn't it. And I met somebody who, through it was the Leader Transition Institute, and it's kind of to figure out what, what you really want to be too. And I said, you know, I want to, I really want to be somebody who helps businesses pre prepare for disasters and survive. And they go, okay, 
you're applying for legal jobs. Yeah, doing investigations, which I hated. Doing regulatory compliance, which I'm not a big fan of. It's like, ugh, boring. Like, why, why are you, why are you applying? I said, because it makes sense. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Since when did, when the hell did I ever do anything that made sense to everybody else? I was always the person who did stuff that didn't make sense. So I need to get back to who I was. And at that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to stop applying for jobs I don't want. And then that started me on the path of becoming an entrepreneur. So there's so many false narratives that I hear coming that you just kind of, I always say it's a slow fade. And it sounded like that was where you were at. It was kind of a slow fade back to what your parents were. And then all of a sudden the shakeup happened. There's so many cool stories within that. I wish we had more time, but I also know that we have to kind of uh, continue on with where you're at currently. So one, you transitioned while you were in high school saying, I'm going to go to NYU, kind of, we're going to throw consequences out the window. I don't care. I'm just, that's what I'm going to do. And then you get comfortable in the position of stability. And then all of a sudden you're coming back and you want that comfort. So that shakeup, did it take you out of a comfort zone? Is that what shook you up? Or can you point to something that said, Hey, this is really looking back. You're telling me that it's good, but how did that shake you? Like, where did that come from? So when I was leaving the military, so part of when you transition out of the military, you have to, if if you're smart, you do uh, benefits, determination upon discharge of BDD. So I had to, everything I'd been shoving down and hiding from a mental health perspective, I had to push out. And they take the information and they go, oh, we're not going to do anything with it because COVID, we're putting all the evaluations on hold. So to, to like completely rip apart everything and expose it and just let it sit there with no help oh. was awful. Absolutely wow. awful. And then I had the stress of, there's a pandemic and, you know, my dad's sick. I can't go see him. I'm afraid of exposing him to something. I don't have a job. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do for money. And everyone's like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I was like, okay, I have plenty of money saved. I qualified for unemployment. But then also with the the mental health, I had to, and which made it worse for the VA is everybody else was really distraught during COVID. It brought out stuff. So their appointments were really backed up. So when I finally got to somebody who would talk to me and do an evaluation, uh, they're like, okay, we can start seeing, you start treatment in eight weeks. I went, fuck that. Nope. I need to see somebody sooner because I've been living with all this stuff exposed for months now. And I, and and I'm like crying every day and I can't stop. And they're like, all right. I said, so give me an option because the thing is 22 soldiers or military people a day will kill themselves. I'm begging you for help and you're not helping me like begging you. And so I said, there are two other options. So give me both. Whoever contacts me first, I'll go to. And I was able to go at NYU actually has a, a military mental health clinic. So I was able to go through that. And that's when I started my, my therapy with them. But I needed to be shaken up about who I was. I was like, I was just in a really dark place. And that's where I wanted to like grab onto something because I wasn't getting the help I needed. I needed to grab onto something that was familiar. And that would be my parents' mindset about this is what you need. This is what makes sense. You have to get something. And I realized I didn't need that because I'm still me. And I look back at everything I've, everything I've ever wanted. Do you know how hard it is to get to NYU? I decided I was going and I got in. And then you still have to apply to get in the jack board. You have to go through an assessions board. I got rejected the first two times. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a JAG officer. The third time I got accepted. And I was like, well, because I will always get whatever it is that I need and I want. And it just, it happens to work out because it's supposed to be the way that I believe it's the, it's the way it's supposed to be. Like I was supposed to be home, not working across the country. 
I was supposed to not be working so I could take care of my mom because that would have made my dad very, very happy to know that that was taken care of because I'm using a skill that I have, which is my legal brain to do to do something really good for my family and also give myself peace of mind. And I know that my mom's not like stressed the hell out. And it was when I had the time to breathe that I was like, okay, let's get, you know who you are. You know who you've always been, get back there. That's what's familiar. That's what's safe. Not your parents' mentality. It's what you know you are. That is familiar and safe. Get back to that. So define that for me now, because you're now living in this state, which is a really awesome state. And, and by the way, I, I do have to say this just from a personal standpoint. I'm, I'm proud of you as an individual to recognize where you are and take the steps necessary and demand that because like you said, there's 22 a day and that, that's a big number, but I'm glad that you were willing to, to stand that and say, I'm, I'm going to push through that. So congratulations on that point. But where do you stand today? In, you know, like in, in the process of your belief system, where do you stand and how do you continue to maintain that, that powerful mindset of, of being on a positive uh, space? So I, I am what people consider woo woo. I believe in energies. I believe that. Everything that comes to you is a gift, good or bad. It's life. Life is a gift, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn from everything. And it's whether or not you take those lessons and apply them. Because you can get, you can be told something, be like, I'm not interested in doing anything with that. Or I don't think that applies to me. Well, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't. But if you're open to stuff as it comes to you instead of resistant, that's where I find that I keep evolving and changing and you know, not even full pivots. I'm doing like a nice curve. I mean, I may get to things through the circuitous route, but I get there eventually. And um, I know uh, I'm actually looking at the time too. So I know we're, we're almost getting to the mic drop moment. But one of the things that I want to say that that really struck me, and this might be my mic drop. I was This was not the intent of what I was watching. This woman was just, I'm a fan of ASMR, right? The videos where people whisper, right? So it calms me down. It helps me go to sleep. So this one woman, she was just asking a series of what she believed were silly questions. And I was, and one of the questions really stuck me as more profound than silly. And it was if 10 year old, 10 year old you could meet now you, what would 10 year old, 10 year old you say? And I was like, well, wait a minute. Cause my lawyer brain doesn't interpret things linearly. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So wait, does 10 year old me know that they're turning into now me? Or is it like career day at school? And, and you know, like I show up and what is it? So there's two different answers. The first one, if it's career day at school, I'd be like, what a fucking badass. Like, that is awesome. That's great. And if it was 10-year-old me who got to know that she turned into now me, she would be so happy that she got to turn into me. And if she knew, if she also got to see all the the bullshit and terrible things that happened along the way, because there's been a lot of terrible stuff that's happened along the way. And it hasn't all been roses and jumping out of planes and, you know, all the stuff. But she, if she knew, like, God, it just to get through all of this, to turn into that and to get there, that's amazing. So I always ask people, ask yourself that question. If 10-year-old you gets to meet now, what would they think? And if they think terrible, shitty things about you, then maybe you need to have a, a come to Jesus moment with yourself and make some adjustments in your life. Yeah. Can you sum that up in just like a real nice snippet? Because that is so powerful. I mean, frankly, if you guys are listening, rewind that and uh, go back, you know, about a minute or two here and just listen to that whole concept because it changes the way that you think. I, I just, that, 
we, we say that all the time. And so flippantly, like you just said, I love that different perspective. Can you, can you give me a summary on just that one piece? All right. Um, ask yourself, if 10-year-old you could meet now you, what would they think about you? And either see it from the perspective of they don't know that, that they turn into you and also that they do know they turn into you. Take from that how wonderful your life has been and how much you can appreciate your past. Or take from that, like, maybe you need to change some things in your life because disappointing a 10-year-old is terrible. <laughs> but I see so much hope in what you just said. I mean, like, what you, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a, a glimmer of hope of saying, okay, yeah, this is what we can turn into. And then the, all of the struggles along the way and all of the, the mental stamina that you have to have to get through that. I mean, like, that's just, I, I'm getting goosebumps on that part of it. So I think that's pretty awesome. You said a lot of things. And I know that there's a lot of military out there that do feel like they're alone. And I do want to offer this out. Is there a way that anybody can get in contact with you to be able to connect on either, whether it's a military level, and I know you do a lot of business stuff. I know you wrote a book. Is there ways that people can get in touch with you or in contact with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is the easiest way, but I'm going to put a caveat and people don't always listen to this. Do not send me a naked request. I do not take naked requests. Send a message. Hi, heard you here. Hey, would love to connect. Hey, we have this in common. Do that and I will connect with you 100% because I have less than 500 connections for a reason. I actually have conversed with every single person that I'm connected to. It's not just a popularity contest. So it's Erica Andreessen on LinkedIn, or you can just send me an email at my business email. I'll respond to personal things on that too. And that's info at eaasc.com. All right, we'll get all of that stuff in the notes for those that uh, want to be able to click through and link on that. Anything else you want to add? I'll give you one last chance to add something else if you want. This would be awesome to yourself, number one, to yourself before you're awesome to everybody else. Kind of like that. Put your oxygen mask on before you help others. I love we, that. We are often not awesome to ourselves. Yeah, I love that so much. Well, thank you. This has been incredible. And like I said, I actually, some of these stories, I get goosebumps. This is one that I got goosebumps. So thank you so much for uh, sharing some of the power that you have as far as the things that you've been doing and how you've accomplished so much. So, all right, listeners, until next time, we're going to have another story. Make sure you subscribe, make sure you submit. And as I say every time, if this touched you in any way, if there was something that really related to you, Either A, reach out to Erica. I know just the person that she is. She wants to hear from you or reach out directly to us. We want to hear about the changes you're making. We want to hear about the things that you're accomplishing and we want to help you continue on that journey and create your own story. So until next time, keep living your journey and living out your story. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.